online, on digital radio and television, and on the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Meg Powell on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, a sting in the tail for the approval of a wind farm on Robins Island. Completely unexpected. Uh, you've drawn attention to one of very many conditions. You know, from what we've read so far, they're, they're consistent with the sorts of things we we're expecting, but this was unexpected. So at this point in time, we're, we're uh, just considering uh, what it actually means. And rejection of a $10 million grain storage facility for Cresi. The decision that the council has reached, which was going against um, their planners' recommendations, is a real kick in the teeth for grain growers in Tasmania. And uh, I'm feeling disappointed for them. A knockback for a grain storage facility and strict conditions imposed on a wind farm development in the state. All that and more coming up today. We've got a cracking show for you. Hello, Meg Powell here with you today. Absolutely stoked to be with you this afternoon for the very first time. And broadcasting to you from the heart of potato country, dairy country, God's country, whatever you want to call it, the beautiful Northwest. And we'll take you there later when we visit a picturesque farm at Forside with plans to expand into agritourism. We'll also have a special studio guest later in the program, a well-known Northwest farmer, plus a check on the weather. But first, let's head into our lead story. The proponents of a wind farm in northwest Tasmania have been told the project can go ahead if they operate the turbines for seven months of the year instead of year-round. ASIN Australia has been working for six years on the wind farm project to construct up to 122 wind turbines on Robins Island. Tasmania's Environment Protection Authority has given the company the green light, with a number of conditions, including it not operate the turbines for five months each year to protect orange-bellied parrots, a critically endangered species that inhabits the area. Dave Pollington from ASIN told me the condition came as a big surprise. Look, I'll be perfectly honest with you. There are 33 pages of conditions. Yes, that is an un unexpected condition and we haven't yet really analysed the impacts of that and and how we would manage that. So I really don't have a view at this point in time, having only just received the conditions myself. It kind of caught you by surprise then? Uh, Completely uh, completely unexpected. You've drawn attention to one of very many conditions and, uh, you know, if you have the time, uh, there are other conditions around management plans and studies and observations that need to be done across a whole range of things. You know, from what we've read so far, they're, they're consistent with the sorts of things we're expecting, but this was unexpected. So at this point in time, we're, we're uh, just considering uh, what it actually means. I suppose I draw attention to it because it essentially is saying you can operate at half the time that you thought you could. What kind of challenge is that? Is that a financial hit or does it not matter too much if they're not running half the time? Oh, uh, yes, um, a good question. Uh, the wind turbines uh, are not that lucrative that you could uh, get away with running them half the time. So um, that in its current form, would be problematic for us. So we'll need to consider what our options are going forward. So that potentially is a threat to the viability of the farm? Uh, It is potentially, yes, but we need to really understand what that actually means. The condition itself can be removed uh, with the approval of the the board. I think the condition that you're referring to, if I'm correct, is FF6. Mm. Um, that, That can be removed by the board. 
subject to the um, provision of um, suitable evidence. So it may be possible to uh, to provide such evidence. Which would come from your end, I'm guessing? Uh, look, it, it would, but don't forget that we've prepared our development application in conjunction with the experts from the Commonwealth and the state regulators, so the information we're using is not secret information, it's, it's publicly available information, uh, and they're relying on the same information ourselves, which is why... Um, we are somewhat surprised, but again, uh, we need the opportunity to uh, have a look at it and work through what our options are and how we might address that. This project, over the over the six years that it's been boiling away, has faced a fairly significant amount of community opposition. Are you concerned that you're going to get more lashback from this approval or less, or what are you expecting? To be honest, um, firstly, I'd like to take... Uh, issue with your characterisation of uh, the, the level of community opposition. Um, we would view it based on all of the community engagement that we've undertaken over the last five plus years as to be a fairly low level of community opposition driven by a few small interest groups. I would expect them to express their opinions much as they have done in the past, probably nothing beyond that. But the difficulty is, is the vast majority of people who have been supportive don't actually say things and aren't interviewed in the press and don't write letters to the editor. So a noisy minority. Absolutely, absolutely a noisy minority. And um, look, I support everyone's right to have a say and have a comment, but it is frustrating um, the level of misinformation that has been spread um, by um, certain small uh, minorities. David Pollington from ASIN talking about an approval condition for a wind farm on Robbins Island from the EPA, which requires the turbines not to operate for five months a year to protect the endangered orange-bellied parrot. Now, Director of the Environment Protection Authority, Wes Ford, told ABC Statewide Mornings how he came to the decision to on the orange-bellied parrots. As part of the assessment process, it was very clear that orange-bellied parrots and the inter- potential interaction was going to be a critical element. So over the last year, and this process has been going for five years, we've been taking advice from both the Commonwealth and the state departments about orange-bellied parrots. And it's very apparent that we needed to have regard to the National Recovery Plan for orange-bellied parrots, and that deals with migration as a significant objective. And we got very strong advice from both the Commonwealth and state agencies that there needed to be appropriate mitigating measures in place. And the Commonwealth went as far as saying if those mitigating measures were not in place, the Commonwealth Minister would not lawfully be able to approve the project. So that's where the basis for the five-month shutdown came from. Uh, There are 33 pages of conditions, and there are conditions across all the fauna uh, and flora. So there are conditions around management of devils. There are conditions around just the management of the site. Uh, For example, if if you look at eagles and other birds, uh, they are required to have shutdown mechanisms on each turbine, similar to the Cattle Hill wind farm. So if an eagle flies in close proximity to an individual tower, the tower will shut down. And the technology will allow that to be expanded over years, for example, to deal with other species of birds. The challenge is we just don't have the data. So data will have to be collected to be able to demonstrate that either Robbins Island is not important in the flight path or that the time can be reduced. 
then there's a risk assessment discussion that needs to be taken by two environment ministers because under the National Recovery Plan with a critically endangered species, the risk profile needs to be set by the two ministers. So yes, there is room to reconsider this, but that's going to be purely based on determinations of two environment ministers. Director of the EPA, Wes Ford, on the conditions imposed on the Robins Island Wind Farm Project not to operate the facility for five months of the year to protect the orange-bellied parrot. So what does this mean for other renewable-related projects and consumers? Fiona Breen has got energy consultant Mark White on the line. Mark White, energy consultant, what's your impression after hearing those interviews? Yeah, well, first, Fiona, I think the complexity of these very large wind farm developments um, is quite obvious now. And, uh, for example, the Robin, uh, Robins Island wind farm has been on the cards for 20 years now. The first feasibility study was you know, back around the year 2000. And so it gives you an idea as to how long it takes to get one of these major wind farm projects up. Um, the other comment I'd make is that these large wind farms are part of a much bigger energy picture for Tasmania and particularly the on-island transmission developments by Tas Networks and, you know, potentially connecting in the Robins Island wind farm. You know, who's going to buy this energy in terms of uh, potentially the hydrogen players at Bell Bay? The stage two of the Robins Island wind farms dependent on Marinus, um, which is probably also dependent on pumped hydro. So the complexity of these projects and the time taken um, is quite significant. So question marks around this project on Robins Island uh, could affect a whole lot of other projects. Yeah, I would think so. And it's been an interesting couple of days with the federal government talking about a capacity mechanism, which is probably good news for the battery of the nation pumped hydro project, um, potentially getting paid to be available in the future, but certainly not good news for the uh, Robins Island wind farm. What do you think this could mean for consumers? Can we work that out? Very difficult to say at the moment because um, all of these costs, you know, hitting onto the system and, as I say, who's going to pay for the output of these wind farms? Um, are the new hydrogen proponents prepared um, to put, you know, numbers on the table uh, to contract for the output? of these wind farms, um, none of this has happened yet. Uh, that remains the $64 question. So they'll now be looking at whether it's going to be worth it to pay for that output when they can't get anything for five months of the year? Well, I think the question is what information and evidence needs to be put forward to enable removal of condition FS6, um, the condition that the wind turbines can't operate for the five months because clearly um, the, the wind... Uh, proposal wouldn't get up if it had to shut down for five months of the year. And what do you think it means for renewable projects in the future? Um, we've seen an announcement yesterday that the new EPA will have extra powers and independence. Um, so it's likely that yeah, there's extra scrutiny on these sorts of projects in the future. Do you have a sense of how Australia is going in terms of uh, renewables and in the international perspective? Australia is at the leading edge of moving away from fossil fuels into renewables. And that also means that we're having to um, resolve the problems in that transition. And that's expensive. So, yes, we're at the leading edge 
Um, we're coming up against all the problems and we're having to solve those problems. And certainly we're a testing ground. We were one of the quickest uptakers of solar energy and now we're one of the fastest adopters of batteries uh, and that, that comes at a cost. And in the end, it'll be the consumer that may have to pay a little bit more perhaps. And even worse than that, what we're seeing at the moment is consumers are investing their money to solve the problems and networks and utilities are duplicating that investment in some cases. So the concern is that both parties can't get a return on and return of investment. What do you mean by that last statement? So consumers are are concerned about rising prices and they're taking matters into their own hands with solar, electric vehicles, batteries, trying to solve their own energy problems. But at the same time, you've got the large utility players trying to invest and solve those problems as well. And so what we're seeing is a duplication of investment. And of course, when you've got a duplication of investment, not all parties can get a return. And the concern at the moment is that the policies that is designed to um, make efficient investments um, are not really you know, getting the rubber to the road. And so there's potential for stranded investments, stranded investments in um, transmission lines and uh, substations and that sort of thing. And so what we really need to be cognizant of is making sure that consumers who are now also investors in energy infrastructure, in their solar panels and in their household batteries and increasingly in their electric vehicles, can also get rewarded for those assets, such as when they're supporting the grid and maintaining voltage stability and all that sort of thing, they need to be rewarded for their investments as well, not just the utility companies. Energy consultant Mark White talking to Fiona Breen about the wider implications of the Robbins Island decision not to have the wind farm operate five months of the year to protect orange-bellied parrots. It's an interesting one that could have some far-reaching impacts and we'll certainly be following that closely here at ABC Rural. But over to fish farming now. For producers farming any kind of livestock, feed is one of the biggest input costs and that includes petuna aquaculture. It's recently invested in new high-tech cameras and environmental monitoring sensors at its fish farm in Rowella to help minimise feed waste and therefore costs. Rowella feed manager Tyler Spencer told Aaron Cooper it's making a big difference in their day-to-day operations. Massive, absolutely massive. So it is our biggest cost, it's our biggest carbon footprint and it's our biggest potential risk as far as environmental concerns go. So feed conversion ratio is the number of kilos it takes to grow one kilo of salmon and that's sort of the measurement that we use in order to see how efficiently we're feeding the fish. So a high FCR is really expensive, a low FCR is really good as far as profitability and environmental outcomes go. So I think it is the most important thing in terms of fish farming. Feeding, making sure that the fish are fed well, making sure that there's no wastage um, and then it's good for the environment and it's good for profitability. What are you doing in that space, particularly to try and minimise waste? Because I know that's been a lot of the concern, uh, especially in headlines over the last couple of years, about how much food is actually going to the fish and how much of it's ending up in the water. So what's happening in that space? Um, So we've recently been going through uh, quite a massive upgrade of our feed system. Um, Wastage comes in two different ways. Either there's full pallets that the fish aren't actually eating and they're dropping to the bottom, or through feed breakage, so actual pallets that get broken on the way down. Um, These upgrades have 
have really helped us minimise both of those different sources of wastage. So the biggest part of this upgrade is our brand new state-of-the-art feed camera system. So in order to monitor the feeding, we have underwater cameras. Um, in previous times, we've had static cameras, so two different static cameras that were in the cage. Um, you could be reasonably sure that you had those in the right positioning in the cage to capture any pellets that were coming through the feeding school, but not sure, not 100% sure. With our new setup, we've got full high-definition high cameras that are movable, so we can winch them both up and down in the water column and also side to side in the pen. So what that allows us to do is that we can follow the feed pallets. Once they hit the surface of the water, we can actually see how they're interacting with the tidal currents and follow them down to the depth that we're feeding, so we can be 100% sure that if there is feed pallets coming through the feeding school, that we're going to capture them. Um, on the other side of it, feed breakage, um, a few of the upgrades have really helped with that as well. So we've upgraded from 75 mil feed lines to 90 mil feed lines. So the bigger the feed line, the less bouncing around the food does, the less breakage uh, occurs. And then also where the food gets introduced into the airstream that pushes it down to the cages, um, we've upgraded, they're called rotary valves. And we've upgraded to quite a large rotary valve, which also will reduce the amount of breakage in the feed. So we've got our breakage down about 100% less than what it was before we did an upgrade of all these feed systems. We were up in the control room before and it looks quite specky. You've got all these um, big sort of screens with the fish swimming around and it's telling you quite a bit of data too on those cameras. What's it telling you and then how can you use that? So the three things that the cameras tell us is the temperature of the water, the depth that the camera is at, but then most importantly the dissolved oxygen concentration of the water. So we will feed the fish uh, whenever the, the dissolved oxygen is above a certain percentage. Previous to this, we would only be able to do a static measurement uh, before we would feed. It would either be high enough or not high enough. Uh, if it wasn't high enough, we wouldn't feed. Whereas now we can monitor it real time. Know your emergency plan this summer. A third consecutive London. And rely on ABC to be with you. What can I do? Broadcasting up to the minute critical information. We have issued an emergency warning. Online at ABC Emergency and on your local ABC radio. ABC Radio, reliable source for information. Stay safe, stay connected. I don't know what I'd do without the ABC. Download the ABC Listen app and stay connected with your local ABC radio station. On air, on digital radio, the ABC Listen app and online. This is Meg Powell with the Country Hour on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And that was the feed manager at Petruna Aquaculture's Roella Farm talking to Erin Cooper just before about their technological investment to minimise food waste. Gosh, I'm all fingers today. It's just gone 12.24. And we're speaking of major developments, a multi-million dollar grain storage facility planned for Parana Road at Cressy has been knocked back by the Northern Midlands Council despite the council planners approving the plans. XLD Commodities had plans for 11 grain storage silos up to 18 metres high in a project worth $10 million. Managing Director of XLD Commodities, Paul Willows, spoke to Tony Briscoe about the council decision and what it means for grain growers in the state. Disappointed. Not so much necessarily with the outcome, but very, very disappointed with the process. You know, we're, as XLD Commodities, we're committing 
to growing the grain industry here in Tasmania. And the decision that the council has reached, which was going against um, their planners' recommendations, is a real kick in the teeth for grain growers in Tasmania. And uh, I'm feeling disappointed for them, um, as well as feeling disappointed for uh, for our company. Just explain to us what the reason was given why the council rejected it when the planners in council approved it. Yeah, look, again, our interpretation of the reasons for rejections was based on aesthetics. Uh, it would appear that some of the councillors were concerned about uh, the height of the silos and how that might look on the landscape along Piranha Road. But for our way of thinking is we designed the site, again, with consultation from the planners, where the silos were actually set back around 400 metres from the road. And if you look what what else is happening along Piranha Road, there's plenty of agricultural industrial activity at both ends, you know, including the abattoir, the feedlot, potato sheds, Burlington Berries, uh, impact fertiliser plant. So w- we thought it was actually in keeping with the area, in keeping with what council's plans were. Now, Paul, you did look at a, at a few other sites, didn't you? Uh, yeah, Tony, We, I think we've looked at over 10 different locations within the Northern Midlands municipality and we... We decided not to go with those sites for numerous reasons, including uh, traffic and aesthetics and you know, mainly traffic, basically. Yeah. Okay, so where to now? Well, um, we're, it's a good question, Tony. Um, we're, to be honest, we're probably a little bit lost at the moment. Um, we do strongly feel that the, the state needs a modern state-of-the-art storage centre um, that can accommodate the growth that we've seen in the grain industry. We're going to examine why the council or the reasons for the council's rejecting our proposal and then we'll have to look at our options to see whether we uh, appeal or whether we um, try and come up with something else. Was it a unanimous decision from council? No, I, I don't believe so, no. So, and again, the disappointing thing for for XLD, and I think it should be for the grain growers, is that there was no real support for us, you know, to continue looking for an appropriate site if if they deemed that was not the appropriate one. How much has all of this cost you so far? We've spent probably over $50,000 so far on this application. So, again, this is all... This all feeds back to a cost to the grain industry in Tasmania. Um, now, you keep talking about the expansion of grain. Just just how big is it getting? We had, um, I think we had you on the program last week talking about it, but just explain it to us again. Yeah, so in very sort of simple numbers, um, Tony, um, grain production over the last five years has more than doubled. Uh, you know, last year we took in um, about 57,000 tonnes and... The highest our current site has taken in um, in the prior year was 20,000 tonnes. Now, we're expecting this year's harvest to be even bigger. So we would in- anticipate our receivables are going to be well over 60,000 tonnes this year. Okay, so you do need um, that uh, storage facility somewhere. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And the other thing is too is that we've got to keep in mind that Tasmania as a state is net deficit of grains 
that is the state consumes somewhere in the order of 450,000 tonnes of grain. And yet the state at the moment, even this year with our increased production, is only going to produce around 100,000 tonnes. So, you know, the, the room for expansion is is very large. Well, I mean, if we're going to not rely on the mainland for our grain supply, uh, then then we could we could double easily double production in the state. Managing director of XLD Commodities, Paul Willows, talking to Tony Briscoe about the rejection of a grain storage facility at Cressy by the Northern Midlands Council. Now, Mayor of the Northern Midlands Council, Mary Knowles, says it's now up to XLD to decide whether they want to appeal the council decision. But told Tony Tony Briscoe the silos are needed. Around the council table, the the main reason was the height of the project, the height of the silos. It was felt that it would significantly impact the, uh, well, the rural vista mainly. There was an issue around the number of... um, heavy vehicles on the local road, but I think the main issue was the height of the uh, proposed project. Is it correct that council planning officers um, recommended approval? They did. They did. They felt it was an agricultural pursuit that uh, did not impact significantly on the agricultural areas around. Is it unusual for council to um, not take their advice? Oh, that's up to the councillors around the table. They're representing their communities. They're representing the, the farmers that were opposing this. Uh, and it was, yeah, simply the, the decision of the councillors on the night. And how many um, opposition numbers did you have with regard to submissions from local farmers? Uh, I don't know. I haven't got that the figure with me, but um, there were a few. Yes, there were a few farmers who were distressed by the the impact of the height in particular. What about the need for the storage facility uh, with the expanding grain industry in the state? And our personal opinion is we absolutely need to have uh, facilities such as this, Um, maybe not with the height, maybe uh, more silos, just not quite so high. Uh, We certainly need to be storing the the grain that our our farmers need. Um, They're producing the grain, we're getting better crops than ever. And we need to be storing that appropriately so that it can be distributed where it needs to be. What do you hope happens now with this project? It's not up to me. It's up to the proponent now. They, had, they do have a right of appeal or, or they can choose to come back with a, with a different proposal. Mayor of the Northern Midlands Council, Mary Knowles, on the decision by the council to reject a $10 million grain storage facility at Cressy. Gosh, a lot of big decisions in the last couple of days. Coming up, a hobby farm that's turning into a full-time business in its own right, as well as taking a leap into agritourism. And a check on the latest with the weather. But first, it's time for news headlines with Erin Cooper. Good afternoon, Meg. Making news, skyrocketing power prices will be top of the agenda at today's National Cabinet, but a prominent think tank is urging the federal government to reject calls from some states for compensation. The Prime Minister is expected to put a proposal for a price cap to state and territory leaders. New South Wales and Queensland are pushing for the Commonwealth to cover any shortfall. The Grattan Institute's Tony Wood argues energy companies shouldn't be asking for governments to cover costs incurred by outside influence. 
A police officer has faced court over a fatal crash at Penna in Tasmania's south in May. A mother and her teenage son died in the crash involving three cars. Cassandra Joy Richardson is charged with two counts of causing death by negligent driving, one count of driving without due care and attention, one count of driving whilst disqualified and two counts of contravening vehicle standards. And Star Entertainment Group will be hit with a $100 million fine and a special manager will be appointed to monitor its two Queensland casinos. The company's casino licence will also be suspended for 90 days. However, that won't happen until December 2023. More news at one. Thanks, Erin. It's 12.33 and let's check in on the latest weather with Brooke Oakley from the Bureau of Meteorology. Hello, Brooke. Looking a bit sunny out there. It is. It's partly cloudy down in Hobart and much of the southern half of the state is also partly cloudy with mostly clear skies for the central north and the northwest of the state and that's because we have a cool southwesterly airstream that is currently easing after some pretty strong winds yesterday. In terms of rainfall totals, in the 24 hours to 9am Today, most of the rainfall was about the west and south of the state, with the highest totals being 11 millimetres at Mount Reed, followed by 8 millimetres at Nugent. Since 9am this morning, there's been some light falls about the south of the state, topped by Tasman Island, Cape Bruni, with 2 millimetres. And for the rest of the day, we're expecting the showers to continue about the south of the state, although easing during the day and then mostly clearing in the evening. And it will remain fine for the north of the state. And then tomorrow, the weather will be even more settled due to a ridge of high pressure crossing the state. So mainly fine conditions statewide, although there might be an isolated shower or two about higher ground during the afternoon. And that is most likely in the northeast of the state. Winds will be generally light, tending northeasterly in the evening. The period of settled weather is quite brief, though, because we have another low-pressure system to move over Tasmania later on Sunday and during Monday. So on Sunday, we'll see showers developing about the northwest and then extending statewide from the afternoon. And the northeasterly winds will freshen before tending north to northwesterly in the evening. There is also the chance of some isolated thunderstorms about parts of the north and the west later on Sunday. And then on Monday, the showers will continue statewide, although they will be more frequent about the west and far south. And later in the day, we'll start to see some strong and gusty west to southwesterly winds developing. And those will be the strongest about the northwest of the state. Gosh, well, at least we got a Saturday in there. Yeah, so at least it's going to be some generally fine conditions for Saturday, so for half of the weekend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, any warnings coming up? There are for today, there is a strong wind warning for eastern coastal waters from the northern tip of Flinders Island to Tasman Island and no warnings for tomorrow. And out on the coastal waters today, we've got south to southwesterly winds at 10 to 20 knots, reaching 20 to 30 knots about the east during the afternoon. The swells in the west and south are a southwesterly of one and a half to two and a half metres and also an east to southeasterly to around one metre. And the Wave Rider Boy at Cape Sorrel is currently reading 2.5 metres. In the north, a westerly to 1 metre. And in the east, a northeast to southeasterly of 1 to 2 metres. And also a southwesterly of 1.5 to 2.5 metres offshore in the south. And the Wave Rider Boy at Mariah Island is currently reading 2.5 metres. 
And then tomorrow for the winds, we'll see south to southwesterly winds at 10 to 15 knots about the east and variable to 10 knots elsewhere. Those winds will tend east to northeasterly at 10 to 15 knots in the evening. Brooke Oakley from the Bureau of Meteorology. I hope you can at least make the most of Saturday. That's the only good day we're getting, it seems. And I will give a heads up that temperatures next week are going to be colder than average once again, and we may even see snow lowering to around 800 metres on Tuesday. Gosh, I might just cut you off before you say anything like that again. (laughs) Fair enough. Thanks. See you later. See ya. Let's jump back in to rural. And it started with a bit of rhubarb and garlic and turned into a full-fledged farm. About 20 years ago, Anna and Jason McNeil fell in love with a beautiful rural property at Forside and moved there for a lifestyle change. Now they're gearing up to launch into a full-time farm operation, including a new agritourism venture. We've lived here for a bit over 20 years and love the landscape and the um, surrounding bush of the farm. It's it's a really nice mix of um, farmland and bushland and we're at the end of the road so it's very peaceful and quiet and yeah, we love living here. Paint me a little bit of a picture of where we're standing at at the moment. Um, we're standing in um, the side of some old farm sheds in a bit of a clearing um, surrounded by uh, the native bush, lots of um, stringy bark and white gum and blackwood and it's a little bit elevated over the farm so you get a nice view over the other um, productive paddocks. 20 years ago, Anna, you and your husband decided to get a farm as a bit of a hobby, a bit of a lifestyle thing. Yeah, we were actually renting a place just up the road from here and we decided to look for a, um, a patch of land to make our own and it was just by chance that um, a real estate agent had shown me on a map um, this property at Forsyth and it happened to be in the same road that we were living on so we, we came for a walk and a look around and it was a bit bigger than we initially had looked at, but we just loved it because it's um, yeah, a really peaceful, quiet place and lots of nature around us. And it is, it is stunning. I can vouch for that, that's for sure. <laughs> what happens over the next 20 years or so as you built the farm up? Yeah, well, I guess it started as a, um, a lifestyle um, purchase. We've built our own home here. Um, we've raised three kids here and are raising three kids here and we always um, had a bit of livestock. We had a few cows, we had a few sheep. Um, We decided to grow um, potatoes uh, and that gave us a bit of a taste for, I guess, the market that was around Um, and it's something we both loved to do. Had worked a little bit in that area and, um, yeah, we, I guess, have gradually developed much more of a, a going concern and a, um, a business in its own right and we're now selling uh, gourmet kifla potatoes and rhubarb and garlic um, locally um, through Tasmania and our potatoes go into Melbourne into the restaurant trade. I suppose you're at a point now where you're both still working other jobs but the farm's taking on a bit of a life of its own and becoming its own business. Do you have to make a choice at some point? Yeah, we're really hoping to, I guess, scale the business to a point where it can become um, something that we do here ourselves. We we run around in circles a lot of the time, managing um, outside work as well as the farm, and we do pay staff to come and help us with harvest. Um, we employed an apprentice um, last year, and that was a big step to have somebody, an employee, on the farm. Um, but it's meant that we've been able to, um, I guess diversify and and 
sort of spread out the jobs a little bit and make things a lot more efficient. As part of that, you've got plans for these rusty old sheds that we're standing in front of. What are you going to do with those? Well, the first job is to pull them down. We've got a few old sheds here, um, but they've got a really, um, they've got good bones and there's, there's good timber and there's some reusable iron. And that gave us the idea of, I guess, the, the primary design element for a new tourism venture that we're, we're building into the farm business. Um, again, it's a step to, I guess, diversify further, another enterprise that we can draw an income from and to give visitors um, an experience that everybody craves, just getting back to nature and seeing how food is produced and being in a beautiful, quiet place um, for a bit of a holiday break. There's a fair bit of that around these days, agritourism on farms. Is that an advantage in this situation, do you think, or will that detract having too many things on the market, perhaps? No, it's really, it's come to the time where I guess people are realising that those experiences um, are in fact what people are doing anyway. Um, There's some research around that suggests that 70% of Tasmania's tourists at the moment are actually engaged in agritourism, even though it's not something that they're um, calling it that, Um, but they are experiencing food and wine and landscape and animals and they're all the th- reasons why people come to Tassie and love it so much and we've got it in abundance. So, And you've, you've recently been awarded a grant from the state government. How helpful will that be in your process of becoming an agritourism business? Yeah, that was amazing. We only just found out a few weeks ago and we couldn't believe it. We didn't think we'd have a chance because there were so many applications. Um, so we're, yeah, we're really stoked and we, it'll just mean that we can start straight away. Um, so we're, we're onto it. We're, we're getting in and we're giving it a go. Have you had any kind of support in this process? Yeah, we, we joined up, um, to a really great program, uh, run by Regionality and, um, funded by Tourism Tasmania. Um, and that's taken us through an amazing process of, of learning about agritourism, but also, and and probably most importantly, reassessing all of our goals and really taking us through our steps in why we would do this, what does it involve, are we really committed, um, you know, really serious thinking about does it fit in with our um, passions. and So you're not going in blind. Yeah, so we're fully prepared and I think um, in terms of the group going through, which was an amazing group of people from all around the northwest. Um, as well as the the whole state was involved. And, yeah, just everyone sharing their ideas and where they're at and some of their sticking points and, yeah, totally being, I guess, eyes wide open about what tourism involves and what, um, I guess, what the market is looking for at the moment um, and whether what we've got and what we want to do would match in. So it it was perfect timing for us because we've been dabbling with this idea on and off for years and... This process um, really helped us nail it and, um, yeah, it gave us the confidence to, to go forward. Anna McNeil there from Fulton Creek Farm at Forthside, explaining her family's journey from hobby farming into an agribusiness, including plans for new accommodation. Why do I get news from ABC Online? Well, it's part of my daily routine. I check it on my phone when I stop for a break. I can focus on local, national or world news. It's my choice. I get an alert when something new comes in. Love the live blogs. Follow them all day. There's more than just headline stories, you know. It's news that makes a difference. Why do I get news from ABC News Online? I trust it. I trust ABC News Online. And it's free. It's free. For free news you can trust, go to news.abc.net.au or the ABC News app. Keeping you updated, this is the Country Hour with Meg Powell on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
Now, speaking of fourth, we've got uh, quite a special guest here this afternoon, live from the studio in Burnie, and it's been far too long since we've done that. It's fourth farmer Mike Gladcock. Good afternoon, Mike. Good afternoon, Meg. Now, Michael, as well as being a serial community volunteer, heavily involved in many organisations, running your own intensive cropping farm, you sent me your CV, so that's why I know all this, You've also, you're also a member of the Tasmanian Farmers and Graziers Association Vegetable Council. Now, the weather's finally cleared up a little bit lately. How have vegetables been faring across the state? It's uh, been a really big challenge this year, uh, especially in a country that's a bit more prone to be wet. Uh, the red soils on the northwest coast have really showed out well this year and it hasn't really affected those areas very much. But, uh, but some of the back areas are, are very slow uh, if they can get the crops in. It's going to be a time of shortages. I don't think we're going to make uh, a quota on probably potatoes and peas and a few other crops. So it's a challenging time, I think, for the industry going forward. What other, what other kind of challenges will that present as we head into the ne- next year? Well, it's a, it's a triple whammy, really. Uh, a lot of our costs are going up, and uh, that's uh, putting a lot of pressures on the viability of a lot of cropping. And a lot of farmers, because of the squeeze that we've had to uh, exist with the last 10 years, have decided probably to go back to grass instead of growing crops. There have been quite some significant uh, price increases this year, which has tempted some to come back. But it's still not going to be enough and uh, it's going to be interesting going forward. So people have actually left the business, so to speak. Yes, that's right. And it's uh, something I haven't seen probably in 40 years is uh, people are going to have to start paying to get the commodity uh, with the shortages evolving. And I see shortages still evolving now for probably three, at least three years, maybe five, which is going to force the prices up to a degree where the farmers are probably going to come back and get some just rewards for what they're doing. Uh, how You're semi-retired, but how have you personally fared over the last couple of years? Uh, yes, it hasn't affected me so much, but the people who are cropping on my land, uh, it's quite interesting driving around looking at what they're doing all the time. Uh, it has put more pressure on trying to get ground ready, uh, get crops up, get them established. But uh, the front country crops are growing along quite nicely and uh, looking pretty good for the ones that are in. Mike, you're also pretty involved in exports. Are there any challenges there at the moment? Yes, um, the freight costs have been, that's if you can get containers. Uh, it's one thing that uh, Tasmania and, and Australia has really got to uh, push for more exports. We have too much food in Australia a lot of the time, so we need to enhance our export crops. I see some great opportunities in export uh, with our natural advantages. We can produce a very reliable, high-quality product, and we've got to sell that as a premium product on a world market. I see a lot of opportunities there, and I'm always pushing for... Uh, to putting a lot of R&D monies into finding these crops and starting to grow them. I want to talk at sale yards. You're also, you've been involved in plans to get a new set of sale yards up here in the northwest ever since the yards at Koiba closed down a couple of years ago. Where are those plans sitting at the moment? Well, we've uh, put a lot of work in and we've got a business plan and uh, we've got sites ready and everything else. It's uh, it's something that uh, farmers, uh, uh, butchers and everybody has been crying out for. 
and uh, it's got very frustrating. I don't know. I think there's a, some other agenda in the in the background somewhere. Like it's a no-brainer. We do need sale yards. We need stock marshalling areas. We need biosecurity areas. But we're finding very hard to get any traction at the moment. Lastly, I uh, saw a couple of, a little while ago a, a story in the Advocate newspaper about your parents having a very special anniversary. Tell me about that. Yes, I'm very proud of my parents. I'm lucky enough I'm the eldest of six children, but my father turned 100 years old the other day and my mum 95, and uh, they're both still living at home and uh, have a lovely garden, vegetable garden and a flower garden, which I think uh, keeps them very you know, active enough. I'm very proud of my dad. He did a 2.6-kilometre walk the other day, so he was very proud of that. At 100 years old? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Goals. Well done. Thank you, Mike Badcock, and thanks for coming into the studio. Thanks, mate. Richard, and it's time, it's that time, it's Friday, time to check in with livestock reporter Richard Bailey and see what the markets have been doing. Richard, how did Parana look this week? G'day, Meg. Uh, yeah, not nearly as many cattle as a fortnight ago. Uh, 1,249 uh, store cattle yesterday. The job was cheaper and everyone thought it would be cheaper, but the really good quality cattle still sold very well. The secondary cattle and the heifers were definitely cheaper. I thought some of the heifers were probably two to $300, and in cases a little bit cheaper than that. But the general run of, of good steers sold well. Um, the heavier feeder steers made anywhere from 2350 to $2,620 a head. Yearling steers, the better yearling steers made 2120 to 2580 or 530 cents a kilo. Medium weight, 1600 to 2280 or 525 cents. And lighter, 1740 to 1960 or 620 cents a kilo. And then a few weaner steers topped at 2240. And um, most of the rest sold from 1480 to 2180. Big range, but uh, quite a range of weights there. They average around that 690 cents a kilo. So as you can see, sold pretty well. Uh, over to the to the um, heifers. Uh, the best of the yearling heifers made 1600 to 2200, six, 430 cents a kilo, and then the rest anywhere from sort of 1280 up to 1780 cents a kilo or 500 cents a kilo. Few weaners. 1360 to 1700 to, or 580 cents a kilo. There were 32 cows and calves. The best made 2700 to a top of 4200 for some thumping big cows with big calves on them. Yeah. And the rest of them 1450 to $2,100. So, um, although it was cheaper, pretty good day. And how are things looking on the mainland this week? Um, the, the general theme is that the market's come back and is coming back. Um, it's always the case when there's a bit of a um, bit of a, a price movement that the the rumor the rumor mill gets going. It, it, everything's come back a bit, and and if you look at some of the store sales in South Australia and Victoria, they're just starting on some of their weaner sales, early weaner sales, and certainly some of those are cheaper, and you know anywhere from two hundred to four hundred dollars less than this time last year. But you've got to remember, this time last year we're off the planet. Um, generally speaking, in the prime sales, um, cow market uh, just. About the same as last week, a lot of the averages sitting between the better cows, 340, 350 cents a kilo, and then your grown steers, they've become a little bit cheaper again. They're anywhere from sort of 400, averaging 410 to 420 cents a kilo. 
the trade cattle job has come back over a period of the last three or four weeks, mainly because it, the, there is almost no feeder competition in the market at the moment. And I'm imagining that's not going to stay for long, but that's certainly been the driver over the last 12 months. And um, so a lot of the trade cattle are now more sort of around that 450 to 500 cents a kilo, whereas probably a month ago we were talking a lot of the better trade cattle over 500 cents. So there's been a fair correction there. And how's sheep and lamb looking? Um, bounced back a bit, uh, lamb market, this week after last week's diabolical <laughs> reports. Um, in fact, um, and, and it's really on the back of smaller numbers. Um, you know, there are only 26,000 lambs at Ballarat on Tuesday, 10,000 at Bendigo Monday, um, and 10,000 at Hamilton on Monday, and then when we got across to Hamilton on Wednesday, 40,000, um, which are small numbers for this time of the year. Um, and as a result, the lamb market improved probably in a, up around about that 5 to $10 a head. It meant that at Hamilton on Wednesday, um, the heavy, extra heavy pens made anywhere from 210 to 260 dollars a head, or 740 to 790 cents a kilo, and then your trading weight lambs made anywhere from 136 to 203, or 730 to 820 cents a kilo. Now there's a big, big gap in um, in prices there, but the reason being it is that in all these markets, and we saw it at Wagga yesterday, there's a big percentage of these lambs that are unfinished. And it's because of the wet weather and the cold weather, and that's the same here in Tassie. I reckon we're running, I reckon we're running a good three weeks late on what we are, normally are. Um, talking to buyer, land buyers yesterday at the at the store cattle sale, um, most of them aren't going to have many decent quality lambs going to their works until mid January. So um, we're a fair way behind. But the the cold weather sort of knocking things around a bit. There was snow around, you know, in the last couple of days. Yeah. That's, that's ridiculous. <laughs> it's interesting to see what's going to happen, that's for sure, with the weather. Yeah. Uh, mutton market just uh, after the big falls last week and the week before just rebounded slightly. They were sort of... In most markets, ten to twenty dollars better. It still took a very good sheep in interstate markets to make over a hundred dollars. Here locally on Tuesday, we um, we we were more around that fifty to sixty to seventy dollars a head. But there were very few heavy sheep in our market. So um, yeah, it's it's sort of um, a pretty interesting read at the moment. Very interesting. We'll see what happens. Got any plans for the weekend, Richard? Oh, we're doing a little bit of socialising mm. and uh, <laughs> a few bits and pieces. I'll spend a little bit of time in the garden, I reckon. Sounds perfect. Um, yeah, how about you? Oh, well, no, nothing so far. Christmas party or two, I think. <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> good on you, mate. See you later. Bye. It's the news most of South East Australia has been waiting for. The big wet could be coming to an end. After nearly three years of rain and flood events, the ensemble of wet climate drivers, led by a triple La Nina, is rapidly breaking down. ANU climatologist Professor Jeanette Lindsay. Richard, how did Parana look? Th- Pardon me? Let me try again. What's going on is actually part of the sort of normal um, coming to a close of one of these events. Uh, Basically, La Nina events and El Nino events as well, actually, are, are tied in with the cycle of the seasons. And as we go through summer and then head towards autumn, these events break down. And that has happened even over the last few years. We've had several La Ninas on the trot, as everybody now knows very well. Um, But 
is each one of them has gone back down towards neutral conditions starting about this time of the year and reaching neutral by about March or April. And that's normal. What's happening with the current event is that we're seeing the beginning of that weakening. So when we look at the Pacific Ocean, the key sort of characteristic of a La Nina event is a huge pool of water that's below average temperature right across from the central Pacific towards the Americas, whereas around Australia, we've got warmer than average water. And we've had record high sea surface temperatures around the northern and eastern coast of Australia this this last um, spring. And then into summer currently. But underneath the surface, that's where a lot of the really important action is happening. So when we look down below the surface of the Pacific, and we've got data to do that, we can see that the warm uh, water that's at the surface is supported from below off the Australian coast, so it's mm-hmm. warmer down there too. And then over into the, the uh, central and eastern Pacific, it's also colder down below the surface. Now that cold pool under the surface is shrinking. And that has been helping to maintain the overall pattern of La Nina all these months. But that's now shrinking and the warmer water is starting to move under the surface out into the central Pacific from the Australian end of things. As that comes to the surface, that's going to start breaking down that big cold pool. Probably around about the end of February, we should be looking at the event coming closer to neutral. It will have come off its big peak of La Nina, definitely. But look, we've got the rest of summer to go through, and it's not going to disappear instantly. What's happened in the Indian Ocean is quite different. The Indian Ocean dipole, which has been negative and has been feeding warm, moist air across the continent of Australia for months, uh, that has broken down, and that tends to break down more quickly. Mm. Um, And it's all tied in with the monsoon in the tropics and all that kind of thing. That was ANU climatologist Professor Jeanette Lindsay talking there about the possible end of La Nina, this triple La Nina that we've been living through, thank goodness. And that's all I've got for the country hours today. Be sure to keep listening next week. We'll delve further into the situation for the major wind farm proposed on Robins Island. And it's a bit strange to think about after all this rain, but we'll be having a look at how communities can withstand the impacts of drought. Meg Powell, it has been an absolute honour bringing you the Country Hour today. It's time for news.